Hey, Faye, exciting news. We have another awesome supporter of the show via our Patreon. Yeah, so today's shout out goes to Aaron McCreary, who is a $20 patron. So they get a shout out from us here on the show, as well as a very special something in the mailbox. What's that, Nick? So at that $20 level, Aaron, you're going to receive a Creogs Over Coffee mug. Get excited. We'll be in touch with you about sending it your way shortly. Um, and if you want your own Creogs Over Coffee mug or want a shout out on the show, remember, head over to patreon.com slash Over Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. All right, guys, so it's fall again, and I know we're just a few months away from Creogs. Nick, I'm always looking for places to find good information to make sure that my residents have good information for their exams, and also, you know, I continue to refresh my knowledge of OBGYN. Well, yeah, I mean, you're already listening to what I'll say in my humble opinion is the best podcast in OBGYN, but we also (laughs) have some great other resources available through the resident core curriculum with our friends at the OBG project. Definitely. The nice thing about the OBG project is that not only do they have the resident core, they have an OBG L&D ebook and other things like the second trimester ultrasound atlas, all of which you can access for free as a resident if you sign up. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and again, get the OBG project and all their resources free for all four years of residency. Just, again, head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, and get signed up. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. Previously on the podcast, you know, we have talked through some forms of genetic screening, uh, mostly, though, about aneuploidy screening. Here and there, we've mentioned carrier screening, but we haven't really talked about it in depth. So let's jump into that today. What are we going to talk about with our learning objectives? Yeah, so today we are going to review the definition of carrier genetic screening and uh, some historical strategies that we employed to do this. We're then going to discuss the limitations and residual risk of carrier screening technology. And finally, we're going to recognize the ACOG recommendations for specific carrier screening for certain conditions and in certain populations. For all you interested folks out there, you can follow along with additional reading. So there are several committee opinions, including 690, 691, and 816. Um, Those are Uh, carrier screening in the age of genomic medicine, carrier screening for genetic conditions, and finally, consumer testing for disease risk. All right, Nick. So let's go ahead and get this podcast started with the first question of which is, what is carrier screening? Yeah. So initially, we mentioned aneuploidy screening. And this is always the thing we have to contrast with, because when we talk to patients about genetics, we have to sort of divide this line. So aneuploidy screening is looking at some biochemical marker in someone who is already pregnant to typically understand their risk for trisomy. And these are the things that you think about, you know, with cell-free DNA, with integrated screens, with other stuff like that. Mostly we're looking at a risk of trisomy 21, which is what those tests were developed around, but can also get some additional information regarding other common aneuploidies. Carrier screening, on the other hand, looks at the genetics specifically of parental contributions to assess potential risk in a current or hypothetical pregnancy. The way I like to say it to patients is that this test tells you if you carry a condition that you are not affected by, but that could potentially affect the baby if you and a partner were carriers. 
Carrier screening, because it tests the parental contribution, only needs to be performed once in a lifetime, as opposed to aneuploidy screening, which needs to be re-performed with every pregnancy. ACOG recommends that information about carrier screening should be provided to every pregnant individual, so we should be doing counseling about this. So that's sort of the baseline, Faye. Um, let's talk a little bit more, though. I mentioned, like, this is something patient has to have, partner has to have. That's like a recessive condition, right? Yeah. So uh, like you said, you know, carrier screenings really commonly just look for these autosomal recessive conditions, meaning both parents need to be carriers in order for there to be a 25% risk that the fetus is actually affected. And generally, the parents are not affected by these um, by these conditions. Things that we would look for are things like certain X-linked conditions. So think, you know, hemophilia, fragile X, all the way back to medical school. Um, these things can also be screened. And um, information can be used in pregnancy planning, understanding risk of fetal conditions that may impact the life or the lifespan of the fetus. And then also it can provide a possible choice for IVF with pre-implantation genetic um, testing or invasive testing in pregnancy. Other conditions may be discouraged from carrier screening. So these are things that could potentially be autosomal dominant, like Huntington's disease or BRCA genes, because of ethical concerns with doing carrier screening on fetuses, given these are usually adult onset conditions. And really, there's no official threshold for carrier screening generally, but most panels select conditions with a carrier frequency of 1 in 100 or greater, which generally will lead to a disease incidence of 1 in 40,000. And that means there's always some residual risk even after carrier screening. And we're going to talk a little bit more on that later. All right. So, Nick, we've talked about, you know, these autosomal recessives, like excellent conditions that can be tested for. So what are the actual strategies that have been suggested for carrier screening? Meaning, how do we actually do this? Yeah. So historically, carrier screening was mostly considered actually on an ethnic basis or what ACOG terms ethnic-based screening. They also have acknowledged recently multiple limitations to this approach. We've talked about this on the show before, Faye. You know, one thing, for instance, is that it's really challenging for individuals to define ancestry, like what makes them them, and also a lot of people don't know the whole story of their ancestry. There's a lot of ancestral, quote-unquote, uh, mixing, if you will, between partners of different ethnicities, and that can cause sort of different risks for an individual depending on where their families have come from. The pretest probability then, um, so again, the likelihood for you to find a carrier condition in a carrier screen for a positive test is really difficult to predict given sort of the makeup of the population. And so no, really, this ethnicity-based screening, while useful in some circumstances, is actually starting to be a bit more discouraged. One of the historical exceptions to ethnic-based screening that we should mention and is an important clinical caveat are couples with consanguinity. So if a couple is considered consanguinous, they are going to be at higher risk of recessive conditions because they're more likely as a consanguinous couple to be carrying the same mutations, the same carrier um, conditions. So they're at higher risk of those recessive conditions being expressed in offspring regardless of their ethnic background. So there's this ethnic-based screening, but a lot of more current approaches in genetics have started to move towards what's called panethnic or 
kind of even more broadly expanded carrier screening. And what this is is a panel of disorder screening that's offered to all individuals regardless of their ancestry, kind of again recognizing the limitations in that approach. The really nice thing about this approach too and kind of the move towards it is that the cost of screening has really come down significantly um, where some commercial panels are allowing for patients to get screened for hundreds of conditions at a pretty low cost overall. Um, the last strategy that I'll mention kind of beyond expanded carrier screening is targeted screening. And that's really just if you have a family history of mutations or conditions that are known. Geneticists can kind of target in on particular individual conditions. There are panels that exist for kind of particularly rare conditions um, or unusual conditions. You know, the things that I think about here, like there's a Marfan disease panel, right, that looks for very common mutations of folks whose families may be affected by Marfan syndrome. Um, but that's not something that's offered typically in just a general expanded carrier screening. You kind of have to have that a priori thought um, surrounding the mutation. All right, so Faye, one other thing, we've talked a little bit about limitations of carrier screening in this ethnic-based screening role, um, but what other limitations are there? So the other limitation that we need to talk about is residual risk. Um, so these carrier screening panels, I think it's important to know, look for only known mutations in a population based on a reference genome. And these reference genomes are overwhelmingly represented by white populations. So that means that carrier screening may not detect all mutant variants of an allele, meaning that even if you come back negative for that, there may be some residual risk. Carrier screening also doesn't recognize new or potentially disease-causing variants, and so that we need to remember that carrier testing is not the same as whole exome sequencing. And so because of that, just because you've tested with um, even a carrier screening that has multiple, multiple um, diseases, this doesn't mean that, you know, we are looking at every single possible genetic disease out there. All right, Nick. So uh, I feel like now we should shift our gears a little bit to some more specific diseases that ACOG actually talks about, because I think, you know, there are certain genetic conditions that I feel like we highlight a little bit more with our population when we're speaking with our OB population. So what are those? Yeah, so let's start with spinal muscular atrophy, Faye. Um, I feel like this one was one that kind of came into vogue for carrier screening while we were in residency um, and is still recommended by ACOG as a universal screening test. So just to remind folks, SMA is an autosomal recessive disease of spinal cord motor neuron degeneration um, that requires biparental inheritance of a mutation or deletion of a gene called SMN1. So again, autosomal recessive. And I'll put a little asterisk next to that biparental inheritance because we should talk a little bit more about that and one important exception here. It is a leading genetic cause of infant death, and the incidence of disease is around 1 in 6 to 10,000 in populations in the U.S. So again, compared to that sort of target that we threw out earlier of around 1 in 40,000, is certainly more common than that. 
The carrier frequency in most populations is actually pretty surprisingly high, around 1 in 40 to 1 in 60. Um, the other important thing to know about SMA as well is that 2% of cases are actually the result of a new gene mutation, so a de novo mutation that affects um, the parental contribution, so not anything that actually could be screened for. SMA in its carrier screening, though, has a really interesting and unique genetic profile. Um, and this is getting a little bit into the weeds, I'll admit, but you might, if you're interested in genetics, you might find this one really fascinating. So generally, SMA works like any other autosomal recessive disease. There's one copy of this SMN1 gene per chromosome, and a deletion abnormality on each parental side would lead to disease. Again, autosomal recessive. However, there's some of the population that actually have a special phenotype where they have two copies of SMN1 on one chromosome and zero copies on the other. So those patients are actually technically carriers, right? Because they have one chromosome that has two copies, so the unaffected chromosome, and the other chromosome has zero copies. And so they could theoretically pass that zero copy chromosome down to their offspring. Carrier screening tests for SMA, though, generally look for a copy number of SMN1. So a patient with this particular variation, again, where they have a 2 plus 0 mutation is what that's called, would be missed, whereas the 1 plus 1 kind of, or the 1 plus 0 leads to a copy number of 1. So they would be identified as having the mutation. This 2 plus 0 variation is actually much more common in African Americans specifically, according to the committee opinion, and it lowers the carrier detection rate of SMA from 95% in white patients to 71% in African Americans. So there's a much higher residual risk in African Americans from the usual SMA screening tests as they will miss that 2 plus 0 variation. Um, so again, I know that was like getting into the weeds quite a bit, Faye, but it's like a really great example of the potential limitations of some of these carrier screens. No, I think it's great because I feel like there's always confusion about SMN screening when I'm talking to my residents. So that's a great explanation. Um, let's move to another common one. Yeah. So the next common one is cystic fibrosis. And I think um, at this point, we're probably all pretty familiar with this disease. Um, just to kind of summarize, though, cystic fibrosis is the most common life-threatening autosomal recessive condition in the white population. The incidence is about 1 in 2,500 in white populations, but it's considerably less common in other ethnic groups. The thing that causes the disease is when there are two copies on chromosome 7 of the CFTR mutation. Most carrier screenings look for one of the 23 most common mutations that exist. And again, again, these are predominantly in white populations. But really, there are over 1,700 CFTR mutations identified that can lead to cystic fibrosis. And so, therefore, performance ranges in terms of being able to detect these mutations from 94% sensitivity in Ashkenazi Jewish populations to less than 50% in Asian populations. And because of the number of mutations that there can be on the CFTR um, gene, some have advocated for CFTR sequencing to actually supplant panel testing as a way to determine carrier status and reduce that overall residual risk among all populations. All right, let's talk next about some hemoglobinopathies, Nick. What about these and how do we test for those? 
Yeah, so we've mentioned hemoglobinopathies on the show before. Remember, we had Dr. David Abel from Oregon come talk with us about sort of those things in pregnancy, and we touched a little bit on the genetic screening then. Just as a reminder for, again, thinking about thalassemias or sickle cell disease, all pregnant patients should have a CBC with red blood cell indices, and that's like your baseline screen to be able to assess for risk of anemia and risk of hemoglobinopathy. And particularly if you're seeing, you know, a microcytic anemia, you should have a next in your mind a thought for hemoglobin electrophoresis. Now we touched then that once upon a time the ACOG recommendations were more along the lines of, oh, if you are black or if you are Asian or from the Mediterranean, a hemoglobin electrophoresis can be considered. And actually also if you're black, like you should just get a hemoglobin electrophoresis anyways. Now, though, that recommendation is much more refined and reflective of this sort of pan-ethnic type of screening and says that hemoglobin electrophoresis could be considered in all patients with anemia, particularly if there's family history, an ethnicity-based risk factor, or microcytic anemia to help screen for hemoglobinopathy. Alpha thalassemias, remember, can only be detected with molecular genetic studies, though. So even... So ultimately, if your electrophoresis is not conclusive, you need to do DNA-based testing to pursue the thought of alpha thalassemias. Another one that we actually talk a lot about in OBGYN FE and is a good reminder for boards is Fragile X syndrome. Yeah, definitely for the MFM boards, which I realize we actually have to take our written boards at the end of this oh, year. Um, so Fragile X is the most common inherited form of intellectual disability. Um, it leads to distinctive facial features in males um, and large testicles, delay in fine and gross motor skills. Um, these are some of those manifestations that we sometimes talk about and see with Fragile X. In terms of frequency, we can see Fragile X in 1 in 3,600 males, and it's less common about 1 in 4,000 to 6,000 females. The carrier frequency in the U.S. is around 1 in 250 for those with no known risk factors or 1 in 86 for those with a family history of intellectual disability. Um, so Fragile X is, as its name sounds, an X-linked disorder that comes from a mutation in the FMR1 gene. And this mutation is characterized by an expansion of trinucleotide repeat sequence of CGG. Um, and the more repeats, that leads to a more significant mutation and a more significant phenotype. So for example, an intermediate number of repeats is 45 to 54. Premutation is usually defined as 55 to 200 repeats, meaning that these are individuals that are not necessarily affected by Fragile X, but the next generation can be. And then a full mutation is when there are greater than 200 of these CGG repeats in that FMR1 gene. Females tend to carry a premutation or a full mutation X chromosome um, are also at risk for premature ovarian insufficiency. And females with a full mutation can also have fragile X characteristics of diseases like in males, though there's more variable expression, and that's just because there is that second X chromosome um, and there can be lionization. One thing I wanted to touch on, Nick, before we kind of end this podcast too, is we hear a lot about um, a specific population like Ashkenazi Judaism and carrier screening. And so what does that mean? And are there specific conditions that should be screened um, in our patients who are of Ashkenazi Jewish descent? I think that's a great question, Faye. And actually in 
kind of doing the background for this podcast, it's one of the things that I feel like I had internalized over the course of my training. Like Ashkenazi Jewish populations are at much higher risk for X, Y, and Z. Um, but I'm not sure I actually really understood what Ashkenazi Jewish means or if like I could ask somebody, oh, are you Ashkenazi Jewish? And they would know what I mean. Um, so in the committee opinion, though, they actually define an Ashkenazi Jewish as an individual of Eastern or Central European Jewish descent, which is not a super accurate or helpful designation. And actually, most individuals with Jewish ancestry in the U.S. are descended from these areas. Um, so it's a little bit of a challenge, I guess, in terms of kind of picking that out as like, oh, this is Ashkenazi. Um, and many individuals may actually have some form of Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. If someone is from this area and recognizes that they may have specific genetic risk to them, the recommendations from ACOG are for uh, several other diseases for specific screening. So cystic fibrosis, we've already talked about. Another one is Tay-Sachs disease, which is a severe progressive neurodegenerative disease um, with a functional deficiency in a gene encoding an enzyme called hexosaminidase A. Um, that's just kind of one of those random board questions might get you an extra point here or there. The carrier rate for Tay-Sachs and Ashkenazi Jewish populations is around 1 in 30. Other diseases that are recommended for screening include Canavan disease, which is another severe degenerative neurologic disease, familial dysautonomia, um, and then multiple others like Gaucher's disease, Joubert syndrome, maple syrup urine disease, Neiman-Pick disease, and a handful of others. Um, there are panels that are developed for an Ashkenazi Jewish population are very ethnicity specific. So while those panels may be great for this individual population, um, again, it's developed with this population in mind. And so if a individual without this heritage is screened, the discussion surrounding residual risk can be really, really complicated because in other populations, the incidence of carriage of these diseases is actually quite low. And so you may be missing mutations that would affect those populations differentially. Um, so more to come on that front. I guess the last thing, Faye, before we sign off on the podcast, um, is that there are actually a whole host of things you can get online to do carrier screening, right? Like, it, or I won't mention brand names. We shouldn't do that. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're right. There's a bunch of direct-to-consumer online genetic testings that basically our patients can just go and get. Um, and even some of the more reputable companies in the space have, you know, those direct-to-consumer options given the decreasing expense of this technology. And I think, you know, we're even told by our genetic counselors that if you don't have insurance, um, most of these genetic tests, depending on the company, only cost somewhere between like $200 to $300, which I don't want to say that that's, you know, insignificant, but certainly is potentially affordable for many of our patients. Sure. Um, the thing that I think we need to highlight is that these companies have varying degrees of privacy protections for genetic data. And so there may be some implications on a patient's eligibility for things like disability and other types of insurance, um, long-term care considerations, and ownership of one's own genetic data. 
Some direct-to-consumer testing uses different kinds of technology to also develop a picture of risk for a patient, so that may or may not be helpful in their context. And then abnormal results of concern should always be reviewed with a genetic counselor, and that's not always necessarily available when it comes to these uh, direct-to-consumer types of tests. And actually, if you have any concerns or need more time for your patients to discuss whether they want to have carrier screening, it's always worthwhile to send them to a genetic counselor. Um, They can help patients navigate targeted versus expanded carrier screening and help make decisions that are right for each individual patient. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this uh, very important podcast about prenatal carrier screening. I certainly learned a lot. Um, So why don't we go ahead and summarize? Sure. So we first talked about what exactly carrier screening was. Again, looking at the genetics of the parental contributions to assess risk in a current or hypothetical pregnancy, typically of autosomal recessive conditions. So both parents passing a mutated gene down in order for there to be a 25% risk of the fetus being affected. There are some certain X-linked conditions like hemophilia or fragile X that can be screened. There are other conditions like Huntington's or BRCA genes that we don't typically screen for because of ethical concerns. And there's no official threshold for carrier screening generally, but most panels look at carrier frequencies about one in a hundred or greater um, to look for screening. In terms of strategies that have been suggested for carrier screening, historically we have um, had ethnicity-based screening, um, but this has multiple limitations because, again, there's a lot of ancestral mixing that can occur that we don't necessarily know about, and then that pretest probability of, of a positive is difficult to predict given these limitations. So our current approach is to favor pan-ethnic or expanded carrier screening and offer it to all individuals regardless of ancestry. And then finally, if there is a family history of mutations or conditions that are known, then we would recommend more targeted screening to look for specific mutations. However, there are limitations even in expanded carrier screening, and that's um, the effect of residual risk. What this means is that carrier screening doesn't detect all mutant variables of an allele. Um, The reference genomes that they use are overwhelmingly white in population. And also, carrier screening does not recognize new uh, potentially disease-causing variants. And carrier testing, we need to remember, is not sequencing. There are a handful of conditions recommended by ACOG to be screened for with carrier screening, including spinal muscular atrophy, which is a neurodegenerative autosomal recessive disease. It's a leading genetic cause of infant death. Go back and listen to that part of the podcast for the description about SMA's interesting genetic profile and that 2 plus 0 variation. It is a great example of the discussion of residual risk between populations, where the performance of SMA screening in white populations is around a 95% sensitivity, but 71% in an African-American population. Other diseases that we will recommend screening for are cystic fibrosis, which is the most common life-threatening autosomal recessive condition in white populations. Another interesting example of the differential screening performance of these carrier screens, hemoglobinopathies, fragile X syndrome, and then patients with Ashkenazi Jewish descent, which we defined as individuals of Eastern and Central European Jewish ancestry. There are additional screening recommendations, including for Tay-Sachs disease, Canavan disease, familial dysautonomia, and multiple others. The last thing we talked about is just to be um, aware of these direct-to-consumer online genetic screening tests, um, simply because there are some concerns about privacy of genetic data uh, and also about the actual risk for a patient and patients not understanding their outcomes if they're not um, able to speak with a genetic counselor. All right, Faye. Well, I think that does it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go onto your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee. Or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes on our website, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week. That'll be at www.creagsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction for this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, creagsovercoffee at gmail.com. 